Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. I want to take a second to gush about a Latinx book I read recently. If you like fantasy, you've got to read Blaze Wrath Games by Amparo Ortiz. It's about a 17-year-old girl named Lana Torres who dreams of playing on Puerto Rico's Blaze Wrath team. Blaze Wrath is a high-octane worldwide competition where dragons and their riders compete to score points. If you've read Harry Potter, it's basically Quidditch, except it's better because it has more dragons and less of J.K. Rowling's transphobia and racism. So Lana does get her dream of playing on the team, but when an internationally renowned terrorist threatens the Blaze Wrath Cup, she finds herself quite literally playing for her life. I loved every second of this book and felt all the feelings with Lana's identity stuff. She struggles with feeling quote-unquote authentically Puerto Rican, which is a big, big mood. And the Puerto Rican dragons are so cool. I'm not even going to say why because spoilers, but seriously, go read this book and then email me your feelings about it or anything else at EncuentrosLatinx at gmail.com and I will share your feelings here on the show. All right, my guest today is Jazz Mendez Nunez, and we get into the nuances of the X in Latinx, their experiences existing in nebulous spaces of race and identity, and how their mysterious, inexplicable love for their cat is akin to their inexplicable love of God. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Thanks for having me, Taylor. My name is Jess Mendez Nunez, and I use they and them pronouns. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? So I am born in the U.S. by way of Virginia. Um, my families are from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Awesome. We love to see it. Um, we love to see the Caribbean here. We love to see Puerto Rico here. We've had like five people on the podcast that are also Puerto Rican. <laughs> I, I promise that's not completely intentional. It's just that, you know, thanks to diaspora stuff, we're everywhere. <laughs> Where are your people from? Um, well, so my um, my mother is where I get my Boricua side from, and uh, and then my father, he's uh, various white American. So I'm that's actually from the south too. Um, he grew up, well, he was in a military family, and so he kind of lived all over. But uh, they lived a lot in like Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, and I still have a lot of my dad's family is in Georgia actually. Okay. Yeah, Georgia. Lots of Latinos in Georgia. Our people are all over the South in ways that don't often um, get told in the common narrative of the South. That's so true because 
I mean, I, that just even reminds me of back in the election um, when they were talking about the Latino vote. Mm-hmm. And what was it that came up? It was that it was really Latinos in it was the Cuban Latinos in Florida that had a significant percentage that had voted for Trump. And then the media took that as talking about, oh, Trump had the Latino vote or something like that. Do you remember seeing that discourse? I think so. To be honest, I don't follow electoral politics super closely. Yeah, I don't either, but I'm just on Twitter. So I just, (laughs) I see everything or not everything, but I, I see I see things like that. Absolutely. And as we grow voting power, those conversations are really important to listen to. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. I'm like an active listener in, in what you've got to share. Yeah, it was most of the discourse that I saw around that was just kind of criticizing this idea of um, Latinx as a, as this monolith, mm-hmm. because that's kind of what that's kind of how the narrative, the media narrative was treating it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminded me of how you know, when we think of where do Latinx folks live? Well, you know, we think of we think of Florida, we think of New York, we think of Chicago, um, but we don't always think of North Carolina or or Georgia or you know some other some of these other places. And I think it's really important to, like you said, emphasize that folks are everywhere. Absolutely, I think the number that I remember uh, statistically about our people is that a third of us in the U.S. are in the South. That's the largest geographic area in which our people are immigrating and like and taking home and creating home. And so mm-hmm. it feels super important that if we are it, it, this feels like a moment politically where people are talking about building building power for Latinx people in the U.S. And so, you know, really really being clear about where our people are and what we're doing and what we care about seems like it matters. And that um, the story of the South is a really important one to tell there. Yeah, absolutely. So what is a good memory that you have about your family's culture, uh, either Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, all of it? Um, What are some good memories that you have? Hmm. Well, I grew up in southeastern Virginia. My family was a military family when I was born in Virginia. And so that's how we got there because the generation before me and many of my cousins are up in the Northeast where there are lots of Caribbean peoples in Philadelphia and New York. And so my family was stationed there or had been recently stationed there when I was born. So I spent a lot of time excited to see my family, my extended family, but most of my childhood was with my my nuclear family, my my parents and my little brother. And so some of my favorite memories are mostly just of my childhood. I don't think I could really comprehend like what was what was us versus like what was the rest of the world and so like what was my culture and what was like specifically Dominican or Puerto Rican. But I do remember I really have always loved salsa music and and merengue in particular. My father grew up and then I subsequently grew up listening to a particular kind of merengue music from uh, where we are from in the Dominican Republic. And so it was really fun and wonderful to like just on Saturday mornings, you know, we wake up early to get all the various stuff done around the house this music blasting and then to every other day of the week go to school and be listening to the radio 
and be hearing this bluegrass music that I was also like enchanted with and finding a lot of similarities between the things. So music is absolutely some of my favorite memories and like formative things around my culture. Food, I've always loved our food. Some of the things that I knew were really special from the beginning is I would never have um, avocado or aguacate anywhere else besides my mm-hmm. my family home. And so it was really one of my favorite things to like crack open a couple and just eat them like right off of the uh, right off of the the seed. And mm-hmm. I didn't ever visit the islands until I was uh, an adult, but it felt like having a little piece of the islands that I hadn't been to before, like right there in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting because avocados now are so ubiquitous and you can find them everywhere. But I don't that wasn't always the case. And the same thing with plantains too. Yeah. You can go you can go to a grocery store now and find plantains. And then but then when, when I was growing up and my mom would get plantains, I mean I'm I'd be like, where is she even getting these from? Absolutely. <laughs> at the regular store. Yeah. Absolutely. I do remember that, knowing that we we did have to go to a really specific little tiendita. There was only one in the like in the place where I grew up that was a spot where you could find the kinds of foods that we needed just to to be able to enjoy what we were eating and and carry on some of the foods that my family ate growing up themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is your sense of Latinx identity and how do you connect to it or express it? Hmm. So as a young person, very young, it was my experience growing up in this military town that was very diverse because we had been stationed there alongside families from all over the place, including around the world. And so it was very you know, it was very interesting, I think, my experience of growing up in a place that was deeply, absolutely the South in in Southeast Virginia, while also being in this, like, military sense kind of metropolitan, right? Because we have folks from all over, but who are very dedicated to, like, the the American dream, the American ideal. Mm-hmm. Yet still, I, I really found myself trying to, like, locate myself, I guess, in what felt like a very like black and white divided place. Even my town in Southeast Virginia was not particularly as racially segregated as, you know, I I do in my work, all sorts of relationship building with folks around other places in my beloved Southeast US. And when I return home, I'm always sort of wowed by the level of like people intermingling with each other. But still the story was a very like, black and white population. And I was always trying to sort of figure out where do I fit in that? Um, And I have a really strong and clear memory. There must have been like a class in my first grade that focused on talking about race and um, ethnicity. And so I came to my father one day, we were like getting ready for school. And I was just crawling all over him and just talking and talking. He's my favorite person. And I remember I was like holding his face and just looking at him and I was just trying to like locate him on the, on the scale of race that I had learned when I was in school. And I was like, bah, you're, you're African-American. And he's like, no, I'm not African-American. 
And I remember being puzzled. I was like, okay, you're Native American. And he was like, I am not Native American. And I was like, okay, you are Caucasian. I guess those are the three words that I learned, right? <laughs> right? right? And so I was like going down the list because I was like, I was clearly taught these things. I loved being a student. I knew categories. I'm sure categories were my favorite thing when I was six. So I was trying to figure out where does this person who I love and who is like so familiar to me, but clearly like I'm trying to locate where does he belong? And so where do I belong? Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, I'm not any of those things. Like I'm Dominican, you're Dominican, we're Dominican, I'm Dominican. And it was a puzzling sort of like, well, I didn't learn about that in school. So I'm not sure if that exists exactly, but you know, we're just going to keep it moving. I carry that memory with me, I think, because I have been fascinated for a long time with trying to figure out like where to locate myself as a like as a gender non-conforming person. I mm -hmm. feel really like I live a I live a life that exists between the two poles of um of male and female. And that is like it's a it's a comfortable place even where I'm uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so my Latinidad feels very similar. I am, I am of people who are not from the United States, but are also from the United States. My mother was born in Philadelphia, um, but is Puerto Rican and grew up in a neighborhood in Philadelphia that was very Puerto Rican. And many of our Caribbean communities create these little enclaves, right? Where it's almost mm -hmm. like you are from that place, even if it's not on the same even if it's not in the same like borders of Puerto Rico, like you're still from Puerto Rico because you're from this particular block of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And so I'm from those people who are from the U.S., but also not. And my family, like many Caribbean families, are very like we are phenotypically very like mixed and mixed up. Mm -hmm. And so my father and my brother are darker skinned than I am and I identify like in and out of having a black experience and mm -hmm. my mother does not have that experience and looks what more of like the world may like look at and point to and be like oh that person is Puerto Rican mm -hmm. and so I feel like there are all these places and it's true also for my Latinidad because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish but most people sort of expected by looking at me that I would be able to speak Spanish, mm -hmm. that I just live in between all of these different middle, like I'm in this middle space and I feel a lot of delight in being able to take up this middle space and look at the two poles and learn more about the two poles from being in the middle. And that feels very much like my, my experience of Latinidad, especially in this moment in 2020 or 2021 or wherever we are, <laughs> where... You know, it seems like Latinx people from the U.S. are really trying to figure out like we are we are in this borderland in the middle place individually and collectively. And so we um, are being called to account for ourselves like everybody else in this era of accountability, of like reconciliation and and also reprisal of white supremacy. Like where do we stand and where are we where are we going to fall in line, yeah. right? And so we're in this middle place trying to figure it out. And I'm like, I can I can look and engage with other Latinx, Latino, Latina people and be like, yeah, I, I we're all in the same struggle right now. And that's where I feel really connected to our community. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And that's a lot of really great stuff uh, that you just said. And, you know, it makes me think about what even makes up Latinidad and how sometimes that in and of itself is fraught because of anti-Blackness and colorism mm-hmm. uh, in this community. And I know that I, I've done um, in some of the the reading and different ways that I've been connecting, I've seen folks who really are more either phenotypically or, or this is like who they are more culturally, um, Black and Indigenous folks who are also or would also be Latinx, but they reject that and they mm-hmm. reject Latinidad because of of some of these issues. So is that something that you have come across in your work as well? Um, most of my work has been my self-work, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I that's think we're really that's new to a community conversation. My work of purpose as the co-executive director of Soul Force, which we can talk more about later, um, mm-hmm. has me much deeper in sort of a like diaspora-wide conversation around what it means to be from like peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's been Mm -hmm. really exciting to be a part of. So I'm happy to talk more about that. But I, I, just from an individual perspective, I find that that conversation that we've been having around the like canceling Latinidad really helpful for me in developing my own relationship to myself and to to Latinidad, my roots as somebody from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. One of the most, two of the most formative, like two things that I can point to that I'm like, these help shape me and my understanding of myself was in 2014 when I had read Borderlands for the first time from Gloria Anzaldúa. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't finished that book after seven or eight years of reading it because I just like read bit by bit and get so sucked into this sort of like, what does it mean to be a people from these borderlands, these middle spaces? And in this like queer feminist perspective, it really, it really speaks to me to be like in process, in development, in like, um, especially understanding ourselves of, of, as people who come from being these colonial subjects right Mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways um and being of colonizer and colonized and what does it mean to have what does it mean to be of people who are seeking these questions that have to do with the root of our beings and come from people who are in one way or another broken off from our roots and it that work when I first read it six or seven years ago, sort of left this hunger in me of like, what does it mean to be healing my root wounds around feeling like I'm not from one place or the other? And the second text that I read just last year really helped me like situate myself and be like, oh, okay, like that feels okay. And it's it's a piece that's gotten its rounds on the internet last year from Alan Pelias Lopez who has been a really like formative scholar around the like problematizing Latinidad conversation mm-hmm. and I write this amazing, amazing, just like speaks to my heart essay called the X in Latinx is a wound, not a trend and sort of speaks to the, this understanding of there being woundedness in being from a Latinx context around settlement, anti-Blackness, femicides, and inarticulation is what they talk about. And mm. it is just a really, I think that it is really 
a great thing that we are just like interrogating all of the corners of this conversation of what it means to be Latinx, mm-hmm. particularly understanding the the root of of settler colonialism and anti-blackness on our communities and what it means to be people who have been all up in that conversation from various points of like where you fall or where your ancestors fall in that caste system. And then bringing all of that that is like really deeply, um, you know, like ingrained from generations past into an entirely new context in the U.S. And so I find it a really exciting conversation to be a part of because my work right now is like locating myself and trying to figure out like where do I fall in all of this I often try to be I I like really identify with my dad where I'm like I'm Dominican and I'm Puerto Rican and that's like as close as I can get to articulating who I am but it's not it's not perfect Mm -hmm. but it feels like it's it's a closer representation it's the best I can sort of do in the same way that queer does not explain my my gender or my sexuality but still like that is the word that i choose because it it points to all these things that i'm trying to work out about my roots and where i where i've land myself and my desires and the possibilities of becoming something more than this binary that we inherited right yeah i i hear that and i'm really fascinated too by this this discourse about latinx and the x in it cuz i've actually had it come up in my social media a little bit, just some things that I've seen very recently. Um, I saw something, I mean, it's not the first time that I've seen this conversation, but just re- like very recently, it's uh, it's come up into my sphere again, just about the, um, there's one point that some people make that they say that the term Latinx is, it's English colonizing Spanish. And then there's a response to that that I see that is talking about the well the history of the term it came it came from the community and, and all of this and on the third hand I've, we've got two hands and a third hand and then I've also <laughs> seen Latina right like using the e which is much smoother in Spanish and from what I understand so far has a much greater chance of being used widely like in Spanish publications as this gender neutral way of of people being able to have terminology mm-hmm. to identify in mm-hmm. in various languages and so uh, you know I, I know you you already talked about this a little bit but I think it's I mean especially since this podcast is called Encuentros Latinx and our ministry is called Encuentros Latinx right we're using this we're using this term and at least the way that I want to use this X here is to also create space for people to come on the show, for example, and not be Latinx at all, you know, if, because they have issues with it or to, or to say that or to say that they're Latina or whatever it might be. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around just kind of some of those points about the term Latinx being a way that Spanish is being colonize, which I think is kind of a weird argument since Spanish is also a colonizer's language. But I'm curious, though, if if you have other thoughts around that, just to just to consider and add to that conversation. Yeah, it feels again, it feels like a a tricky place to like enter into because Mm -hmm. they're like 
this is my opinion as a random person who yeah. I'm 28 years old. I'm like trying to figure out my own identity and relationship to Latinidad mm-hmm. um, and myself as a like, as this queer, like brown skinned, you know, come from Afro-Latinx people and just in all these places, I'm just trying to I want to absolve myself of the like, I'm, I'm just playing around with this language also. Like, I think. Right. Yeah. I'm we excited. all are here. Yeah. I'm excited. Again, it's like, w- these conversations are really hard. And for many of us, they're really charged because they touch on wounds that, um, like Alam Pelias Lopez is speaking, like from being this Afro-Indigenous Latinx person in the States, that like these are tender wounds because they are generational wounds. And they're also tender because not only are they generational, but like we are experiencing as a group of people, like a lot of isolation from each other just because we are so, I think that this is a lonely time to be on the planet, but it also is like a lonely time to be trying to figure out what our identities are and how we connect to each other across languages and across geographies. Mm-hmm. And why I think Latinx is a really interesting word, it speaks to me as somebody who, you know, I get identified as Latinx out in the world. If somebody is going to point at me and give me a word, that is the thing that will probably be used more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I, spe- I speak English as my first language. I am actively learning Spanish so that I can do some reconnection work there. Mm-hmm. And Latinx just sounds like queer spanglish like it does it's one of those words that queer people and feminists and i understand it like maybe like i've heard stories that like it started in the streets with organizers and some people say well it started in academia or Mm -hmm. something like lots of origin stories around latinx i've heard but mostly how it rings true to me and how i how i use it infrequently with other people is like we use it as Spanglish. It's really, it has a super specific context. It always sounds awkward when outsiders are using that phrasing because like there's a lot of context that comes with being with a word that I do, I if I've heard correctly, like most of the origin stories are like, it comes from a US context. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how true that is, but if that's the case, it makes a lot of sense to me that we have this word that's like a little bit clunky to say in Spanish. English speakers like won't know how it's pronounced on the face of it either. Mm-hmm. And so say it differently than Spanglish or Spanish speakers might say it. And mm-hmm. in that way, it feels very much like how many of us who come to the States and have these multitudes that don't make sense to, to, to people on the outside, like are like, it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of all of these things and it's clunky and it's, hard to pronounce and that feels really familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with, with what you said and, and I hear it too. And, you know, and and again, I just want to emphasize that, um, at least as far as I'm concerned on, on this show with myself, we're going to use terms that, you know, people, that people have, that people come to the table with, right? Like, and some, sometimes that that might get a little bit awkward in different conversations. But I think that the way I look at things is if there's a particular community that has come up with 
pronouns, terminology, whatever, and that's how they identify, then like screw the rules of spelling and grammar in whatever language it might be. Mm -hmm. Because it's to me, it's more important to affirm the fullness of that person that is in front of me or on the other side of the mic or on the other side of the conversation, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, somebody as opposed to being like, oh, well, I have to protect the integrity of the language, whether it's English or, or Spanish, uh, because when it comes to people, there, there's a language isn't alive unless there are people speaking it. Mm-hmm. And if the people speaking it have uh, developed something new within it, even if it breaks what was previously established, then I think we have to roll with that mm-hmm. because otherwise we do harm. We, we really do do harm when we don't embrace these changes in language that help people further and more fully express their humanity. Mm. So how were you fed spiritually as a child? And how has your connection with that spirituality grown in your own understanding of yourself as you've gone through your life so far? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. When I was a child, I I grew up in a household that was not particularly religious. And my first experience with religion or spirituality, as I remember it, um, truly in a like spiritual sense, because now that I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, I went to a Christian kindergarten, I think. But that was an assimilation strategy. My parents enrolled me in this private school to try to get a leg up for me because their directive was like, this kid is going to be the first to go to college. This kid was going to, is going to be the first to have a high powered job or whatever the, whatever the possibilities are, which of course didn't end up being true for me. I'm, I'm the director of a nonprofit, but nonetheless, they're proud of me. Regardless, um, the, my experiences of Christianity before my older brother really connected me to it, which I'll talk about more later. We're mostly a like assimilation of like, how do we get you the best of what we can give you? It's a part of my memory of how I lost my Spanish. I grew up bilingual Mm -hmm. and um, my parents were told by that school, that kindergarten, that they needed to stop speaking Spanish with me in the house because they thought that it would stunt my English. And so I lost my Spanish and it's totally a wound and something that I'm working on still. So I learned a lot of really great Bible stories um, and a lot of really great Bible study at that school, lost all of my Spanish. And, you know, that's a that's a common narrative in the way that colonization works, even when we're outside of our historic lands. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was my that's actually my my first experience of Christianity, though I couldn't necessarily name like this is this has to do with religion at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. But my my experience of God my first memories of that was through my older brother. I, that was like my dad and my brother were the two people I adored the most on the earth. And my older brother really loved me, was 10 or 11 years older and was very happy to sort of cart me around places once he got his driver's license. And when he was in high school and I was, you know, maybe in first or second grade, he was really diving into his own spirituality and philosophy. And he was encouraged by my parents to just sort of go out and 
do whatever he'd like to. He was a musician. And so he ended up um, joining a bunch of various church bands and gospel choirs and like played keyboards and drums at them. And so we would just travel along like around different Christian denominations, like Pentecostal churches, non-denominational churches, like wherever the music was really good. Mm-hmm. Later on in my life, he ended up converting to Islam. And then that was once I he was out of, he was like in some other world, wasn't living in my house. And so that was the, my, my experience was like traveling around to all these churches, hearing different languages and different music, like as the connection to God and the divine. And my brother loved just learning about spirituality and religion and loved the Bible for the possibilities of like what different creation stories might be and, and what, um, what different relationships to God might look like. And so I have really fond memories of having bad dreams and coming to his room and he would read the creation story from Genesis to me and it would just put me to sleep. And so I felt really nourished by the by that connection to the divine. I was a really anxious child. Whatever I brought mm-hmm. over into this world was like, I just had a lot of fear of um, of what I could not touch or see and had a lot of like existential questions as a very young person and um, my brother's sort of willingness to go with me and um, to introduce me to different ways of exploring the answers to those questions without being able to directly answer like what happens when we die or where do we Mm -hmm. come from or what is the edges of the universe like it was a really wonderful way to connect with him and back to myself and so I was always really excited about Christianity because of that connection when I was in high school was when I started recognizing that I was you know, a sexual being and started having attraction. I wasn't particularly focused on who the attraction was towards. And it wasn't, I wasn't a super like really excited and gregarious kid to connect with people. But the, the people that I was like, oh, I'm excited about you mentally and spiritually. I was concerned and shocked because I didn't realize that that would come with sexual feelings. And at mm-hmm. 15 and 16, I was getting more active in my Catholic church at the time. I had like convinced my parents that we needed to go to the Catholic church because Latinos were Catholic and why aren't we going to church if we're Latino or whatever Mm -hmm. the reasoning was. And so I was pretty deep in that world when I started realizing that this thing that I wanted, this way of connecting with people that I love. And, you know, I wanted to explore and experience my own attraction and my sexuality. And I wanted to do that with other people. And I did not want to marry those people. (laughs) And I had really clear plans of like, I'm going to college. I've never been interested in marriage in my life. I did not interrogate if the reason why I wasn't interested in marriage is because I was queer. Um, But I was like, oh, I want to like do these things that I've been told are wrong and I'm really clear mostly around having sex outside of marriage, like that that is sinful. And so once I started to feel out my sexuality, I was like, I I want this more than I want to be connected to this God. And I've been told that this God is not for this thing. And so I'm not willing to live in a way that makes me feel like I'm sinful. And so I'm exiting out of this. I'm not paying 
church, I'm not paying Jesus. I'm not paying my relationship to Christianity or Catholicism any mind. And so it was a very clear sort of stop. Like I started, I was going to three different churches at the time when I was 15, just because I loved, I loved it so much and just stopped and wasn't Mm -hmm. concerned, didn't pay any mind, started hanging out with my, my high school sweetheart at the time. And just exploring myself. And that person was an atheist, was like super like nihilistic. And we got into all sorts of really interesting conversations about philosophy and sexuality. And so that was a like really clear divide for me. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I went to college where I happened to like come into my friend group ended up being queer. And as many queer people know, that usually happens because you are like finding this longing in yourself, right? Like there's these tropes about like this straight person who's the like token straight person in the like friend group of people who are all LGBT. And it's no surprise when at some point that person comes out. I was definitely like somebody who offered a lot. I I was the straight person in my friend group, very happy to be the straight person until i had met somebody that I fell for and helped me realize I was queer. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I just wasn't involved and engaged at all with the spiritual part of myself. That was true for many years. And it took me until I came into the organization that I devote my time to, Soul Force, to recognize that there was a schism there, that I had had this like deep connection to spirituality that I felt like I had to put away in order to explore this other side of myself, my queerness, my sexual self, my embodied self, and that those things didn't have to, the the schism was filled with guilt and shame and that guilt and shame did not have to exist and we can close that schism and we can, we can patch that wound. And so mm-hmm. since then it's been the, what is probably a lifelong journey around, you know, reconnecting all those pieces of myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's actually a great segue um, because I do want to talk about your work with Soul Force. So can you can you just talk about what Soul Force is and what you do? Yeah. Soul Force is a 23 year old national and internationalist organization dedicated to ending spiritual violence and religion based violence against LGBTQI people. And so what we do is we collaborate with activists and communities of faith and people who are directly affected by what we call Christian supremacy around the world. And we help people to identify Christian supremacy or the ways that Christianity is used and weaponized by systems of power in order to moralize a violent agenda. We help people identify what Christian supremacy is and help create interventions against that kind of religion-based harm. And I am the co-executive director, and we are a small team of mostly Southerners, mostly people of color, all queer folks who are working together from across the region. I do a lot of work on developing the organization. I've been with it for a lot of my life of seven years now. And our work is really, I've found from the beginning of my time with Soul Force, really transformative because there is just some deep wounds in in our queer people and generally in those of us who are working on social justice and how do we those of us who are like called to answer the question of how do we create a more equitable world, a lot of us have stories of 
of of having these schisms around what for many of us is a like a natal wants to be connected to spirituality or religion because religion is super cultural right and that's really true for our like many Latinx communities is we have these really intense relationships between family and culture and religion whatever that religion might be and so when we are severed from our families and our cultures and our communities because we are told that our most authentic selves are sinful or that we are breaking mold or breaking tradition or whatever all the things might be, that those things are deeply impactful and they need to be healed so that not only we can individually be more whole and be healed from that kind of spiritual violence, as we call it, but also so that our our movements can identify where we're ignoring religion when we need to actively be working on the places where fundamentalism is being used to deny our rights and our dignity in the fields of LGBTQI equality, in fields of reproductive justice and reproductive access, in issues around the carceral state and abolition work. There's a lot of weaponization of Christianity. And so we we do our work by working with folks to learn how it functions and figure out how to get people what they need in order to work against that. Yeah, that is good stuff and it's it's very much needed in the world and I and I wish that people would pay more attention to that and I I love that you use the term white christian supremacy because I think that it emphasizes the root of so much of what we're seeing. I mean, when I saw what what happened on January 6th with this white supremacist insurrection, I mean, they were hanging up crosses and they were invoking this spiritual, these spiritual iconography, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if the wider world outside of religious organizations, um, progressive folks, formerly evangelical folks, I don't know if they really understand the, the depths of this. Um, it just doesn't seem like, and it's hard for, it's hard for me to say, because I feel like in my echo chambers, I see this conversation a lot, but then I also have to recognize that my echo chambers are full of people with similar experiences or, um, you know, of people who are talking about it because that's the kind of content that I've told the social media people that I like seeing. So of course I see more of that, but then (laughs) when I I try to think about, people that are that are outside of it and I think of conversations I've had like with uh, with coworkers of mine for example who are not religious didn't grow up religious all they see of religion um, of Christianity is it, it just I don't think that that they always get the the depth of these issues so yeah, I just I just think that there's it's great that you're focusing on that and I just wish that it was a wider, point of conversation. Do you think, like, how do you think about that, just the reach of that understanding of, do, do you think that the wider world really understands, you know, that it's white Christian supremacy? Or do you think that it's still kind of not, I don't know if insular is the right word, but just if the understanding of it hasn't quite breached the mainstream, so to speak? Totally. That seems like a, a great and super on top question. I feel it's you know it's really hard to gauge what is what is truly happening like in 
like for all of the people who are engaging with particularly like the insurrection as a topic, right? Like mm-hmm, a topic mm-hmm. to examine where is Christian supremacy showing up? Yeah. And I I think that one of the issues that we we see and identify at Soul Force is true is that the history of Christian supremacy, you know, when we when we go centuries down the line from the development of Christianity as an empire, Christianity has amassed a lot of cultural and legal and financial and political power. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we work on developing a, a greater understanding around and is mostly just articulating that. I think especially mm-hmm. in our in those of us who are are trying to work for social justice, we see and understand the inherent violence that comes with various levels of Christian supremacy, whether you're talking about Christian fundamentalism and the kinds of legal battles and cultural battles that happen around fundamentalism, or you're talking about the way that Christianity is used to back up like white nationalism, like what we Mm -hmm. saw specifically at the uh, at the Capitol steps at the insurrection. Mm-hmm. I I don't um, I don't see from my purview that there's a lack of understanding of those things, but I do think it's really hard to talk about because where do we even begin? And so what Soulforce does, like help hopes to do for our movement, is create a world in which all of us have the language to be able to talk about how Christianity and Christian language and values are showing up in these really violent ways. That for many of us. You know, you mentioned that progressive people are of faith are, are deeply aware of this. And mm-hmm. I think that's because our people are really reckoning with the fact that Christianity has been used for such intense harm, but is also like a really important site of our like, my co-director, Reverend Albona Frio talks about it as our first language of speaking with the divine. Mm-hmm. And so many of us, like, we can't ignore Christianity because that's our our call to, like, engage with that thing. And what I hope as a Southern-based activist, as somebody who loves people with a lot of different faith experiences, but who go up against Christian supremacy every day in their personal and political lives, that we have what we need so we can have conversations about that without getting, like, eked out. I think also people are... um, that we generally need more language to be able to talk about God and talk about Christianity without feeling like we can't go there. A lot of us mm-hmm. learned that talking about Christianity, about faith, about God, about the Bible, while not having a conversation, you know, that's like at a church or is religious, that that is, it's impolite. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to address. It's hard to have a conversation around. And I think it's doubly hard when you're engaging with rhetoric that has been used to harm you. If if I, as a queer person, um, have been told over and over again that I am not made in the image of God because my gender or my family structure is outside of the figure given to us in Genesis and the creation of of humankind, then I'm going to have a really hard time if I haven't, if I haven't worked out how I'm feeling about that and my, my trauma around having been pulled away from God, then I'm going to have a really hard time engaging with anybody who has anything to say about the Bible, because it's like, no, I don't want to talk about that. That hurts. Like Mm -hmm. it's super tender. And so I, 
I am really excited about the places where Soul Force is going in this moment to try to just create more, more public conversation, particularly for those of us in these progressive and more left spaces mm-hmm. that help us unpack what we saw at the Capitol with the Christian flag, with um, the Proud Boys, right? These white supremacist groups being mm-hmm. ordained as God's chosen ones. Like those are really violent expressions of whose side God is on. Mm-hmm. And it's really harmful and we need to at once heal from those and have really honest conversations about how we are going to address that so that, you know, we can, we can heal that harm and not allow for Christianity to be used in those violent ways ever again. Yeah. And that's something that's always in the forefront of my mind too, is just this. I mean, the, when I look at this stuff, the way that the language that I put onto it is, and you know, maybe there, this is fraught too, but just when I'm like on Twitter, just expressing it, I'm like, you know, there, this, this is a co-opting of, of Christianity. This is a, this is, you know, we have to decolonize this because there was a time when Christianity, like you said, was not a, a power of the empire. And, and I think it's, it's because of that, that even despite the centuries of colonialism and Christendom, that there is still something true and liberating behind it all because it did not originate in as this oppressive power but it was co-opted by empire after empire after empire into this weapon and i have i have such a strong desire for people to understand that because but it's just so we can't even get to that point because it continues to be weaponized by these very, very hateful groups that garner all of the media attention. And it's, it's just such a, it's such a mess. It's a big, big, massive mess. Oh my God. It's such a mess. And it's, it's a, like, it's a generations long mess, right? It's like across empires, Christianity has been weaponized. Church history shows us the ways that Christianity was used to be the moralization of the transatlantic slave trade, to Mm -hmm. be the moralization of stealing land and children away from our people, you know, talking about being from Puerto Rico, like Mm -hmm. the islands being historically colonized by the Spaniards who were basically blessed by the Pope at the time, the the deep Catholicism, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of wounding there that is many, many generations long. Mm -hmm. And then when U.S. imperialism landed on the empire, once again, there being a Christianization of the islands through Mm -hmm. this sort of like parceling out of mission missionaries from different denominations who were in charge of creating infrastructure in the island. Mm -hmm. There is that there are these long histories and I don't blame a single person or find fault in anybody who is like, forget that Christianity stuff. Like it is violence. Like it is mm-hmm. like the core of violence against our people, especially for our people of color who are like, I am returning to my roots and honoring my ancestry and my harm by like mm-hmm. not engaging with Christianity. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is a, it's a great idea. <laughs> but like I was saying earlier that like, for many of us, like this is our first language, right? And mm-hmm. like we many because we are individual people with individual like interests and pursuits and like things that we are skilled at and called to do that you know have they 
sometimes they're not based in any sort of sense making at all. Like, I don't know if we've heard my cat on this podcast, <laughs> but I don't I, know. But if we if we have, she's very welcome. <laughs> my sweet cat Stella Luna has she's perched on my lap right now. She's totally taken over my life. I'm enamored with this cat. I have no idea why, but I'm absolutely a cat person because this particular cat has spoken to my soul. We all have our individual, like that, which calls us that, which roots us, that, that, which grounds us. And it's based in a, a million factors. And so the mystery of my like adoration of this cat is as mysterious to me as my mysterious, like, wanting over and over, like finding myself over and over again, being called to engage with Christianity, mm -hmm. despite how, how harmful it has been to me. So yes, many of us, I think are, are like, no, I'm not messing with that stuff. And many more of mm -hmm. us are like, Christianity, you know, is something that is being co-opted is very important to me individually or my community, my family, whoever it must, whoever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I am, I need the tools that I need in order for us to engage that and fight it because I need to reclaim this for myself mm -hmm. and reclaim mm -hmm. this faith for my community because it's my first language of how I speak to mm -hmm. the divine or how I speak to my family. Another thing that's really mm -hmm. important to me around this conversation of Latinidad is like, I've, I have a really, I found it to be really hard when I separated myself from Catholicism because my my extended family, especially the older generations, are very are very religious. And so mm -hmm. it is a really hard place, especially for those of us who are like second, third generation and trying to figure out how we re relate back to these, like to our colonized places mm -hmm. to at hold at once that like we may want to distance ourselves from religion entirely. And like for myself, in order to do the reconnection work back to Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, I find myself having to contend with the like really harmful messages that come out of Catholicism or even just triggering, like, mm -hmm. like being prayed over is really like scary and triggering even after I've been in this work for so many years. Mm -hmm. And also like, I really want to be in relationship with my grandparents. And so I have to figure out how to like hold those things. And so it feels really important to figure out like, how do we create tools that help us all hold those things so that we can do all the healing we need to reconnect and heal wounds? Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that that's something that I think about too. Just it's, it's this tension mm -hmm. that I hold of like, on the one hand, I get my strong faith that came from my mother who grew up Catholic because of my abuela. You know, she was such a deeply, deeply Catholic person. At the same time, I've learned that at least in in her family, in, in my abuela's family, there's this understanding or, or this this story that they they think that because her father was pretty dark skinned and had like the straight black hair that he had a lot of Taino in him. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that and I, I don't know, I don't know the full truth behind it, but I just, I just think about that and I hold that, you know, as, as certainly a possibility, one of many parts of the different people that I come from. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, you know, there's that. And then there's this strong Catholicism. There's, there's this colonizer religion that runs so deeply and it's just, it's this 
it's this contrast that's existing, like in the same person in the same family line. And it just, it just makes me wonder, like, without, without colonization, without that history, would I even be a Christian today? Because Mm -hmm. that side, that part of my family is where that faith even comes from. And it is just such like a, when I, when I think about it, I just go down all these rabbit holes and I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, Of course, you know, that's, it's still what shaped me, but it's, but it also kind of fuels this drive of decolonizing Christianity and reclaiming it as this, this liberative force and not this oppressive force. Mm -hmm. But it's still, that's always so difficult sometimes to articulate to people because it's hard to, it's especially hard to explain it to non-religious people because it's just a lot. Because first you have to explain the colonization part and then you have to explain the liberation theology part of it, which undercuts that. And it just, you end up having like a whole 20 minute, half hour conversation, <laughs> just to, which I don't mind a lot, but just it, it can just be, it can just be a lot to work through and, and to figure out. And I still, I, I don't think I'm ever going to have like a straight cut through answer with it. It's just going to be this tension that I live with. And it's like, yeah, you know, I, I do have this, you know, on the one hand, this, like you said, this oppressed, this colonized ancestry. And then, but then I also have these other things that came from the colonizers and it's like, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely. It sounds like a lot. (laughs) Well, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Um, It could go on for three hours, but it should not go on for three hours. (laughs) So I'd like to wrap this up by just, uh, can you let us know, uh, let our listeners know where we can keep up with all of your work? Yeah, my, my, the home of all of my work that you've heard about so far, my not personal me trying to figure out who Jas is and and what Jas does in the world. That stuff is hosted in Soul Force. We are really excited about this year to come. Last year during the pandemic, we were so honored and excited about the development of a new program area for us. My co-director, I think, was recently on your podcast and probably yep. plugged our our program, Theologia Sin Vergüenza. And this is a, the idea is a podcast. It actually ended up being um, more of a media project that's based on Facebook Live conversations. We've had two seasons so far of these conversations between activists and theologians who are coming out of Latinx contexts from across Latin America um, and having conversations as queer and or feminist theologians around Mm -hmm. just issues that are really on top for our communities. Lots of folks coming on and talking about theologies around queerness, around, you know, colonization, anti-blackness, a lot of conversations around reproductive justice and around abortion access, around mental health, around spirituality, just it runs the gamut. It's a super fun community space. Uh, We ran two seasons last year and we've got, you know, followers and listeners and community members from all over Latin America. And so if you are a Spanish speaker or listener and you're listening to this podcast, I invite you to meet us when we are back on, I believe, April of this year. We will probably be on during the weekends running live episodes on Facebook. And you can follow the project at Teo, T-E-O, 
Sin Verhuenza on Facebook and Instagram um, and be a part of our live community conversations. And we also run programs in Spanish in between seasons. So just follow and, and see what, what lands for you as like what could be a healing space. Generally, Soul Force does all sorts of programming. We have theological resources in English and Spanish that comb through some of the conversations that create these spiritual woundings um, that we want to offer tools for, for activists and people of faith. So you can check those out at soulforce.org. Um, that's our website. Or you can follow us at soulforce.org on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, that's where you can find our stuff. Wonderful. Well, we will wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the show today and for sharing everything that you shared with us. I thought it was a great conversation and I hope that the folks listening got something out of it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.